So we've been going through this series in the book of James, right? And we've been going through the tests of saving faith, the test of saving faith. And refresh my memory a little bit. What are some of the tests of saving faith that we've gone through? What, have, what are some of the ones that you guys remember that we've talked about, even before I was even here? Anyone recall some of the some of the passages that we've covered that we've studied? Yeah, Joel. The test of the tongue. The test of the tongue. Okay, good. Yeah, that's one of them. Yeah, absolutely. The test of the tongue. Anything else? Down through. Which one? Knowledge. Test of knowledge. Test of wisdom. Okay, good. Yeah, the test of wisdom. Yeah, chapter three. Good. Okay, good. The the test of worldly indulgence. Which one was that one? It might have been, but I'm thinking through James, and I'm I'm not remembering worldly indulgence just yet. Oh, okay. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Test of dependence, that's right, we did that last week. Yep, good. Yeah, so we've gone through a lot of these tests, right? And we're almost done with the book here. We're almost finished. And it seems appropriate that James is going to wrap things up and he's going to give us some final tests that are going to be extremely, extremely helpful. However, we kind of come to a passage this morning that is extremely odd. It is extremely odd. And so go ahead and open up your Bibles to James chapter 5. We're going to look this week at verses 1 through 6. Okay, James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Uh, And is there an extra one of those sheets around? Is in the back there. Let me uh, let me grab one real quick. Um, I'm going to actually read the translation on this sheet here. Okay, uh, this is James chapter five verses one through six. It says, "Listen up, you rich. Weep in a wailing manner about your miseries to come. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded." And the rust will be a witness against you, and it will consume your flesh like fire. You saved up in the last days. Look, the pay withheld from the workers who mowed your fields is screaming from your midst, and the cries of the harvesters have entered the ears of the Lord of the armies. You lived for pleasure on the earth. You indulged yourselves. You stuffed your hearts in the day of slaughter. You condemned. You murdered the righteous one. Does he not oppose you? And just on the first read of this particular text, you can probably see this is a very dark passage. It's very dark. It's very foreboding. Uh, It's even gross and disgusting because it says things like, your gold and silver have corroded. Your wealth has rotted. The rust will be a witness against you. Uh, It's even kind of funny because it says things like you have 
you have stuffed your hearts or you have fattened yourself up. It's like, that's weird. So there's some weird stuff in here. And James almost comes across very angry and almost violent uh, in this particular passage. And so it comes not so much as a surprise that James would do this because he's been a little harsh with his audience. But this is the most severe type of an approach that James has given throughout this letter. He gets very, very angry here. And the irony of it all, the irony of it all is that this passage is meant to be encouraging. It's meant to be encouraging. It's meant to actually lift your spirit up and make you happy. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's weird. Really? Why would this encourage me? He's talking about people's demise. He's talking about that people should be uh, destroyed and all of their wealth should be taken away from them. How is this encouraging? How is this actually something that is supposed to lift my spirits? And so what I want to do is I want to help kind of set the tone and help you understand why is James saying this and how is it encouraging? And so the first thing that you guys need to know is that throughout this letter, James has been talking to believers. He's been talking to Jewish believers throughout the entire letter. And he's used this one term throughout the letter to describe the believers. And that is brothers. Brothers. Consider, consider it all joy, my brothers. Or maybe in chapter 3, he says, um, what is it? He's, let, me, I, let me look it up real quick so I don't forget it. Uh, he says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. Or perhaps he says uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, my brothers, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ of glory in an attitude of favoritism. He says, my brothers, my brothers, do not do this. Do not do this or do this. He always says, my brothers. And that's a sign that he's talking to Christians. He's talking to Christians over and over and over again. And then we get to chapter 5, and he uses this unusual phrase. He doesn't call them brothers. He says, listen up, you rich. Listen up, you rich. And it seems like he, out of nowhere, turns and he begins talking to rich unbelievers. That's what it sounds like. And that is, in one sense, the case. He is changing his audience. He is changing who he's talking to. He, he's looking at the believers and he's saying, this is how I want you to live your Christian life. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he turns to the rich and says, you guys are horrible. It's like, where did that come from? But you need to understand that he's still talking in the presence of believers. He's still talking in the presence of believers. He may not be directing his conversation directly to them, but he's still talking in their presence. They can still hear him. They're still reading this letter, and they're still understanding what James is saying. And so, in other words, he's not hoping to change the behavior of these rich people. 
He's not saying this to say, you rich people need to change your lives. That's not his point with this passage. His point is he wants to stimulate a response from those who the rich people are hurting. He wants to evoke a reaction out of the Christians by his interaction with the rich. Okay, And if you're having trouble understanding what I'm talking about here, just imagine this scenario with me for a moment, okay? Imagine this scenario. There's a police officer, okay? There's, there's a police officer, and, and he has a wife and a couple of kids. And they're a wonderful family. They're a loving family. And, and they, you know, they even, you know, they come to Grace Bible Church here, you know, and things like that. They're just a great family, okay? And this police officer comes home one day, and he opens the door, and he sees his house is just destroyed. It's just, it's a wreck. There's stuff everywhere. And he sees his family huddled in the corner. And they're beaten and they're bruised. And he is just in absolute shock. And his wife says to him, we've been robbed. We've been robbed. And one of his little girls comes up to him and and puts her arms around him. And he puts his arms around her and he hugs her. And he tries to console her. But then he looks up, away from everybody, away from his little girl, and he says this, whoever you are, you are going to pay for this. You are going to pay for this. Now, who is he talking about there? Who is he talking about? You are going to pay for this. What do you think? Who is he talking to? Who is he talking about? Yeah, the robber, right? It's not a trick question. The robber. He's talking about the robber. You are going to pay for this. Whoever you are, you robber, you are going to pay for this. That's what he's talking about. But did the robber actually hear him? No. No. Who heard him? His family. And so was this question designed or intended for the robber to understand that he's going to, you know, be destroyed or something by this police officer? No. This robber is not, he never heard him. It was designed for his family. And the intention of that statement is to assure his family that he will make things right. He will make things right. Even though it's, it's as if he's talking to these rich or this, uh, this robber, he's saying, you robber, you are going to pay for this. But that statement is designed for his family. And that's exactly what we have here. We have this statement about these rich people, but it's not designed for the rich. It's really designed for the believers. It's designed for the people who are being oppressed by the rich people. So keep that in the back of your mind because that's exactly the lens by which you should see this passage. This passage is not so much about how or how not you are to use money with your life, even though you can take away principles from this. This is a passage designed to help you learn how to deal with injustice. Injustice. And so this is not the test of godly finances. This is part one of the test of patient endurance. Part one of the test of patient endurance. Because the way you respond to injustice, that comes next week when we get to five 7 through 11. 
So take a moment and look with me at verse 7. James chapter 5, verse 7. I don't have it on your sheet, so you're going to have to open your Bibles to see this. James chapter 5, verse 7. Because this comes right off, right off the bat of James's visceral attack against these rich people. And this is what he says. This is what he says. He says, Therefore, be patient, my brothers. Therefore, be patient, my brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient, brothers. Be patient. Who is he talking to there? He's talking to the Christians. He all of a sudden stops talking to the rich, and he turns to the Christian, and he says, what is the response you should have? It's to be patient. It's to be patient. And so this particular passage, verses 1 through 6, which comes right before verse 7, is designed for the Christian. How should you understand the way God is going to work in the world with regard to these rich people. This is designed to be an encouragement. And so what we're going to learn today, the main point of this entire message is this, that God has a response for injustice. God has a response for injustice, and we take comfort in it. God has a response for injustice, and we take comfort in it. In our in our world, our country, uh, we've really been protected from injustice. We really don't see injustice all that much, and we don't experience it firsthand all that often. Uh, chances are uh, you have never been thrown in jail uh, because of false accusations by more powerful people. That's just that's the reality. Part of that's because you're young, but part of that's just because that's the world we live in. It, that just doesn't happen very often. Uh, chances are you have never worked a job or been at school and you know been thrown out or fired for something you didn't do and the management or the school goes unchecked. That doesn't happen. Uh, chances are you have never been sued for a large amount of money over an issue you're not responsible for, only to lose everything in the lawsuit without a fair trial. Those things just generally don't happen. They're not unheard of, but they are not very common in our society. In James's day, this was common. This was common. The rich people exploited the poor. It was everywhere. And it was hailed as a great virtue. It was hailed as a great virtue to actually oppress people and to make yourself rich by whatever means necessary. The Roman world that James lived in allowed rich people to exploit the poor. And that was common. And that was, in a sense, good. So we don't really experience that in our culture today. Uh, we protect people's rights. We promote equality and liberty and natural rights. Um, you know, what's the slogan? It's one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That's what our country has been founded on. That's the principles that we operate by, more or less. But injustice is on the rise. Injustice is on the rise in our culture. And if you need help with a couple of examples, let me give you a few. For example, abortion. Abortion. Abortion is the definition of injustice. It really is. Uh, abortion is the taking, it's, it's taking the life of a person who cannot defend himself or herself. 
That's, inju- that's unjust. That's injustice. And, and abortion has existed for a while in our country, but it's really become very obvious today. It's very flagrant, and people actually pride themselves in aligning with abortion. That never used to be the case. And so injustice is growing, and injustice is becoming today a virtue. That's the culture we're coming to. We're coming into this kind of culture that even James himself was living in. Another example is uh, that it is unpopular to be a Christian anymore. It used to be Christianity was so popular. Everybody was a Christian. And even if you weren't a Christian, you operated on the principles of being a Christian. You borrowed the principles and the lifestyle of Christianity to live out your own life. Not anymore. Not anymore. That's not the way it is. Now Christians are bullied in the media. They are bullied by their friends. They are bullied on blogs. They are bullied even by our own government. That's the way it is to be a Christian. And it's unjust. It's unjust. And so what happens is we're in this kind of state of questioning. We're wondering, what should we do with all of this injustice? And the temptation is to react. The temptation is to react. The temptation is to snap and to fire back. But what is James's first command to them? It says verse 7, be patient, brothers. Be patient. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. That's the reaction that a Christian needs to have. When there's injustice in the world, the first reaction is not to get upset and to get all angry and to just react, but it's to be patient. It's to be patient. It's to sit back and to think and to trust in the Lord, to trust in his timing to right all the wrongs. And so before James instructs them to be patient, he gives them comfort. He gives them comfort by describing how the wicked will be judged one day and why they should be judged. And that's what we have in our passage here. And you can kind of break up these points that way. How will the wicked be judged and why should the wicked be judged? And so on your sheet there, that's why I have two points. I say, point number one, we take comfort in God's crippling judgment. We take comfort in God's crippling judgment. That's verses one through three. And so verses one through through three say, listen up, you rich, weep in a wailing manner about your miseries to come. Your wealth is rotted, and your clothes have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and the rust will be a witness against you, and it will consume your flesh like fire. You have saved up in the last days. So God promises, first of all, to cripple the oppressive rich with judgment. That's the kind of judgment that it is. It is a crippling type of judgment. It is debilitating. And this is supposed to be comforting for the oppressed believer. This is intended to be comforting to them. And so first he tells them, he tells these rich people, he says, weep and wail. Weep in a, in a, ma- in a, in a wailing manner. Uh, this is uncontrollable sobbing and moaning. Uh, this isn't like 
I stub my toe and I'm crying, you know. You can cry pretty hard when you stub your toe at times. This is not that kind of crying, though. This is, I have lost everything. I've lost everything. There is no hope in my life. That's the kind of crying that James is asking for. He says, you are going to lose everything, and you should just weep over that because you've put your entire life, you invested everything into your wealth. And James says, God is going to take all that away. He's going to take all of that away. And so, why should they weep? Why should they be so sorrowful? Well, that's what verse 2 describes for us. What kind of judgment is going to warrant such, such, such a severe crying? Well, it's your wealth has rotted and your clothes have become moth-eaten. Uh, how many of you guys have ever seen rotten fruit before? Yeah, rotten fruit. Or how many of you guys have ever seen or smelled um, rotten eggs? You ever smelled rotten eggs before? It's gross, yeah? Oh, it's really nasty. Um, or one of the things that I hate, I hate the most is moldy bread. It just, it just looks horrifying. Like, there's like, it looks like there's hair, like green hair growing on it. It's just disgusting. But that's kind of the, that's what the word is here when it says your wealth has rotted. It, it, it's, it's spoiled. It's spoiled. Now, when you hear that, your wealth has rotted, your wealth has spoiled, what is strange about that? What is so strange about that? Any ideas? What is strange about your wealth has rotted? That should strike you as unusual. Any thoughts? Your wealth has rotted. Think about it. Does money rot? Does it like like spoil like food? No, it doesn't. It doesn't spoil, okay? It doesn't spoil. What like you know, your you know, your silver coins and even, you know, your dollar bills and stuff like that. They don't spoil. They don't rot. They might rust but they don't rot. See the difference? They might rust, but they don't rot. So this is extremely unusual. What is James just completely oblivious to the fact that money doesn't rot? Like, that doesn't make any sense. No, he's not. He, he's aware of that. So what's he doing here? What is he saying? Well, turn back to Matthew chapter 7 for a moment. Turn back to Matthew chapter 7, because this gives us the answer to what James is doing here. Matthew chapter 7, verse Uh, Matthew 7, verse 17, it says, So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What is James doing here? When he says, your wealth has rotted, he's actually picturing their wealth as a tree. Or actually, more accurately, their wealth is the fruit on the tree, and it's rotted. 
And what he's saying is, your life has been invested in making money. And that's the fruit that you have produced. But what has happened to that fruit? It has perished. It has perished. It is spoiled. And his point is, why has that happened? Because you were a bad tree. It's not so much that your, your wealth just naturally will spoil. That's not the point. The point is you were a bad person. And because of that, you are going to suffer a terrible loss. That's the point. And so he's kind of mixing metaphors here to show you that it's all about what is inside your heart. And that's kind of what we learned last week, wasn't it? That's kind of what, what we learned last week. That when it comes to depending on the Lord, the reason why people make such confident assertions about the future, oftentimes, is because there's pride in their heart. And that's what James is getting at here. That's the point. That there's an issue in the heart. And that's why the rich are going to experience such a great devastation. Because they have a devastating heart. And so... But he doesn't just say that. He also says that their clothing is moth-eaten. Um, in Scripture, we think of kind of moths. You know, they, they go to the light, and they just kind of hang out with the light for a while and stuff like that. That's how we think of moths. In Scripture, every time you see a moth, it represents that something is coming to an end. Something is about to die. Um, it is basically the Bible's terminator. Uh, that's, that's what a moth is. Uh, when you see a moth in the Bible, you need to run. Uh, it's horrible. It just devours and kills everything. Uh, this is a signal that the, uh, the end of the rich has come. And so God promises to reduce the rich to nothing. Everything they have loved will be taken away from them. Uh, and just stop and think about that for a moment. Everything that you have is going to die. It's going to go away. It's on a, an irreversible inevitable track to doom there's nothing you can hold on to in this life you can't take anything into heaven with you you can't take anything into hell with you there's nothing you can take with you it's all going to pass away and while this is designed to be an encouragement for the believers for those who are actually rich for those who are actually trusting in their riches and are not believers what a what a provocative warning it is just it is so powerful to think about that that nothing you have is going to last nothing at all but in verse 3 it continues on and it gets even almost more harsh here it gets even harsher your gold and silver have corroded and the rust will be a witness against you and it will consume your flesh like fire and he says, I think this is so interesting. He says, your gold and your silver. Gold and silver back in those days was the highest, the highest form of money you could find. Um, we kind of think about that today. When we think of you know, you know, gold and silver and bronze in, in the Olympics, right? The gold is the best, the silver is the second best. Well, well, that's the same thing the way it worked in financially back then. Gold was the best and silver was like second best. It, those two things were the best type of money you could have. And it says, the best thing that you had, it is going to corrode. And that corrosion, that rust, will be a witness against you. And it will consume your flesh like fire. 
Uh, In other words, your greatest source of security in life becomes the source of your greatest demise. I mean, it's as if, like, you saved up all this money in the bank. You saved up thousands of dollars, you know, maybe to go to college or something like that in your, um, in your savings account. And someone goes and steals all that money and buys a gun and then kills you. That's kind of the, what he's talking about here. It's that, 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 that's, that's the picture here. It's all that money you thought was going to do so much good for you turned back on you and actually ended your life. That is exactly what he's talking about. And so he says, you saved up in the last days. You stored up in the last days. And the idea is, you stored up all your riches and thought it was going to save you. But what was the irony of it all? What were you storing up? Wrath and judgment. And that's why he doesn't even tell you what you're saving up. Because the idea is, you're saving up both riches and wrath both of them and so he concludes that all of this judgment is going to cripple you it's going to cripple you and that should be great encouragement for the believer who has suffered at the hands of the rich it should be such a great encouragement james knows our hearts and he knows there's a temptation to react when we're wrong when we're wronged, I'm sorry. Uh, there's a temptation to take matters into our own hands, right? And our culture says, you know, it's okay to retaliate if someone has wronged you or a family member. It's okay to break the law and take revenge. It's okay to shout back at that punk kid at school who's been so mean to you, who's given you a hard time. He deserves it. It's okay to get mad at your friend for a while, you know, if she's being mean or being obnoxious. It's okay to give her the cold shoulder. But James says, even if you're unjustly treated in this world, the reaction you need to have is not to be upset and to be angry and to be violent and to try to repay evil for evil or insult for insult, but it's to what? It's to be patient. It's to be patient. That is the first and foremost thing you can do. I've met a lot of nice believers in the world, uh, uh, sorry, um, a lot of nice unbelievers in the world. Uh, and sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. Have you ever noticed that before? Sometimes you're like, wow, that, that person's really nice. I wonder if that person's a Christian. And you find out, oh, they're not a Christian, but they, but they look so much like a Christian. I mean, maybe, maybe God will just let that person into the kingdom just, you know, barely or something, you know? I don't know. It, there's a lot of nice unbelievers in the world. But the, the one thing I have found that almost always differentiates a Christian from a non-Christian is how they respond when they are wronged. How they respond when they are wronged. Do you want to know how to, dis- to distinguish yourself as a Christian in this world? Don't retaliate when you're wronged. That's hard. That's really hard to do. Love your enemies. Pray for those who actually persecute you and actually make life difficult for you when there's no reason they should. That makes a Christian statement. That really makes a statement. And in the same token, if you want a good test to tell if you're a Christian or not, how do you handle situations when people wrong you, when people hurt you or make life hard on you or persecute you perhaps? A Christian 
takes comfort in God's justice, not his own, and waits patiently for the Lord to respond. But the second thing is this. We take comfort in God's caring justice. We take comfort in God's caring justice. And so we move from how will God judge the rich to why will God judge them? Does God have a good reason? What has prompted such a harsh punishment? Well, verse 4 says, Look, the pay withheld from the workers who mowed your fields is screaming from your midst, and the cries of the harvesters, uh, and the cries of the harvesters have entered the ears of the Lord of the armies. These wealthy men, the reason why they're getting such a, a terrible rap from James is because they have stole from their employees. They have cheated them out of their monthly income. That's why it's so, that's why he's so harsh with them. And he kind of makes this weird picture here. He says, the pay withheld from your workers is screaming. The pay, the pay is screaming. Think about that for a second. Money is screaming. That's kind of weird. It's anthropomorphic. it's, It's turning the money into a human being. It's like, the picture is kind of almost like um, you have thousands of little babies inside the home of this rich person, and they're all representing the money of all these people, right? And they're just screaming. They're just screaming. Now, how many of you guys have ever heard a baby scream? No, no, no. I mean, how many of you have actually heard a baby scream? Like, scream. Okay. I'm talking about the kind of scream that raises the hair on the back of your neck kind of scream. I I used to think, I've heard a baby scream. I've heard a baby scream. And then my sister had kids. And I've never heard screams like that before in my life. It was just horrifying. At that moment, it's just, it's piercing, it's obnoxious, it's unbearable. It's like, wow, like, that is unbelievable. And that's the kind of screaming that this money is doing. It, they're, it's, a, it's a shrill. It's a shriek. Uh, it's so obnoxious and unbearable. And so there's kind of like this, the rich person is kind of sitting there with all these screaming babies around him, just like in this awkward moment almost. It's just, what do you do? And what's the point here? Well, the point here is that the last part of the verse, it says, uh, and the cries of the harvesters have entered the ears of the Lord of the armies. This screaming is replicated by those who lost that money. And those cries are going to God. And God says, I hear those cries. I hear that screaming. I hear that cry for help. And he says, the Lord of the armies, or your translations may say the Lord, uh, Lord Sabaoth. That's the Old Testament way of saying the Lord of hosts or the Lord of the armies. And the picture is that God is the master of war. And he's, he's mastered the art of war. And he owns all the power in all the armies of the world. And he's going to mobilize them all against these rich people because he hears the cry for help. He hears the cry for help. And so that's... That's the picture that he gives here. And then he says in verse 5, You've lived for pleasure on the earth and indulged yourselves. You stuffed your hearts in the day of slaughter. Again, another weird picture. Uh, You've stuffed yourself. Um, You know, I love Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving's come around the corner. And 
I love, uh, you know, a good <coughs> stuffed fat turkey, you know. You don't want a weak turkey. You want a good stuffed fat turkey, right? You want the butterball kind that's like 22 pounds and that can barely fit in the oven. Uh, that's what you want when you, when you have Thanksgiving, right? Well, that's kind of the picture here. These rich people have gorged themselves with all kinds of material possessions. They just have so much. And little did they know that God was actually feeding them those riches, little by little, little by little, and making them fat for slaughter. That's the picture. And there's something else that's kind of strange here. He says, you fattened your hearts. You fattened your hearts. You would think, James would say, you fattened your bodies or you fattened your stomach. You filled uh, you know, your intestinal tract or some, something like that, right? But he says your hearts. You've stuffed your hearts. And what he's saying here is that the issue has never been about the external behavior of these rich people. It's always been about the heart. It's always been about the heart. He's not concerned with their wealth. He doesn't care that they're rich. James doesn't care about that. God doesn't care about that. He says, it's fine that you're rich. That's okay. That's not the problem. And it's not even so much of a problem of how, how much they've spent or, or what they've spent it on or how they've used their finances. That's not even so much the problem. He says, the problem is your heart. The problem with the rich is not that they've stuffed their pockets full of cash. It's that they've stuffed their hearts full of pride. That's the problem. And that is what makes these people so detestable and their demise so sweet to the believer. And so he concludes in verse 6 with their biggest crime yet. He says, you condemned, you murdered the righteous one. Does he not oppose you? And what they did, their, their final crime here is that they've orchestrated and they've masterminded a coup against the Messiah. They killed Jesus. And it's hard to know if that's actually what they literally did because they actually probably lived in Jesus' day when Jesus was around. It's hard to know if, if that, they actually killed Jesus. But whether they did or they didn't, by their pride, in selfish ambition, at bare minimum, it's as if they were there. They're acting as if they are the ones who killed Jesus Christ because of the way they are treating his people. Because of the way they're treating his people. And so he concludes with this. Does he not resist you? Does he not resist you? And that's talking about God. And the assumed answer is yes. Yes, God resists you. What does it say earlier in James chapter 4? God is opposed to the proud. And he says, God, is not God opposed to you as well? Does not Jesus' own father resent you for murdering his only son? Or for at least acting like you have? And that's where James leaves these rich people. They have set themselves up as enemies of God. And so I doubt, really, for these, with these rich people here, I doubt this is any one of us here. 
We're, we haven't stooped to this kind of outright, rebellious kind of behavior. And yet, what a warning to all of us to avoid allying ourselves with such behavior, with such a wicked heart. Materialism is so dangerous. It is so dangerous, as you can see here. It is so dangerous. And it's such a warning to us not to invest ourselves in this world. And you don't even have to be this fragrant, uh, these, this uh, flagrantly and expressively wicked to be alienated from God, to be his enemy. I think the words of James 4, verses 7 through 10 are so appropriate for this situation. He says, the solution to all your problems in this book is verses 7 through 10. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. I think it's so, it's so appropriate that we should not be the one weeping on judgment day over our catastrophe, as James 5.1 says. Don't be that person that is weeping because you've lost everything. Weep now over your sin. Weep now over your sin if you have not already. For those who know Christ, what a joy and a relief to know that whatever injustice we face in in this world, God will make it right. That is the message of this particular section. So if you are a Christian in this room, and if you've faced injustice before, or if you will face injustice, this is a great message. I really, uh, really enjoyed going to Regen with for those of you guys who were able to go. And it was such a wonderful time. We learned so much. And remember what the theme of that camp was, right? Citizens. Citizens, right? That was the theme. And part of distancing yourself from materialism and consumerism and the way you wait for the righteous judgment of God, it is to fix your heart on the things to come. Remember that you are a citizen of heaven. Remember that you are a citizen of heaven. How little we actually do that. How little we actually do that. But when we are invested in what truly matters in the future, we find the power and the hope to live for Christ today. We really do. So next week, we're going to see part two. And we're going to jump into how does a Christian respond to injustice? How does he remain patient in all this? Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this passage. We thank you so much that you are a God who will make all wrongs right. Lord, we trust that for those of us who are Christians. But Lord, if there are those who are not saved, Father, help us. Help them. Lord, come alongside them and break their heart uh, of their sin and help them them to see the pride and the arrogance and and what they're trying to hold on to in this world. Help them to see that nothing lasts, that everything, everything belongs to you. We rejoice in that. 
And we rejoice that one day you are going to make things right and you are going to provide for us an eternal kingdom that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. It is reserved in heaven for us. So, Father, bless our hearts with this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.